Welcome to Deep Roots, Island Waves, stories about life's lessons from Indigenous voices, a collaboration of Clahoos First Nation and Cortez Community Radio. In this edition, a rare carving found near Toba Inlet on Clahoos territory sets off a flurry of excitement when it is discovered. Producer Roy Hales further unpacks the story. British Columbia is known for its totem poles. The province's northern tribes were carving them before the first Europeans came. But up until recently, there has been little evidence of totem poles among Coast Salish nations like the Clahoos of Tobit Inlet and Cortez Island. Examples of a much rarer art form have surfaced in more recent years. Arborglyphs are figures or symbols carved into living trees. In the fall of 2013, one was discovered 200 kilometers north of Vancouver, British Columbia, in the midst of a clear cut in the Toba Inlet. I was working in Toba when the event occurred. One of the fallers had returned from work after his shift and he was all excited and came up to me and he was just bubbling with this information about what they had discovered up there. So he tells me exactly how it transpired. When they were up in the bush clearing the underbrush to get at the tree so they could clear a safe path, Eric McRae was getting his saw ready to take the tree down and his partner, Robert Reynolds, also known as Buggles, was going around to the front of the tree and he was pushing the underbrush away from the tree so that he could check the site and then when he pushed the brush aside he was stopped in his tracks and he yelled at his buddy, STOP! And his buddy looked at him and said, what's going on? And this face was looking at Robert Reynolds. Just to hear him express how how excited or how, how dumbfounded he was. It was really amazing. And I'm glad that he shared that story with me. That, that story goes on in what happened in camp. There was a lot of logging going on. There was some quality control happening. And there was one fellow in there who was debunking the whole find, saying that, he could have done it. Anybody could have been up there and carved this face. Needless to say, he got my hackles up and I had to confront the individual about how he was just desecrating the whole find. He had um, talked to a couple of other native people about it and he was really getting their hackles up too and they came to me to ask if I could deal with this situation and talk to the guy about it so I did and it almost came to blows because I was there to defend this beautiful find. Ken also sent a picture of the face to Judith Williams, Professor Emeritus for the University of British Columbia. So the photograph Ken showed me of the Arbor Griff really is kind of interesting thing so there's a, a face and the face is I would say a good foot tall from the, what I've seen again. And it's quite a rough carving. 
but deeply inset into the tree. So you feel the tree folded kind of around the face, almost like you, you can imagine clothing or a hood or something. So this, because the tree has kind of grown around what was carved into its living cells. And so there's a large oval mouth and a very triangular shaped nose, quite prominent, so it's been left setting out from the rest of the carving, and then eyes. And it's possible that the eyes had a bit more carving showing a pupil, but there's an indication of a pupil. It could have been painted as well. And then the grain of the wood makes it look like it has very sharp cheekbones and then kind of a very big chin. So it's quite a heavy face and long, longer than wide. It's great to hear Ken tell the story again because he came with his phone to show me the picture. So we're in this modern world where he's up there with his little tiny phone and bringing me a picture of something that, oddly enough, I recognized as an important First Nations find. And the reason was that some years ago, the Vancouver Sun had asked me to review a book by Michael Blackstock called Faces in the Forest, and he is a part Gitzkan, I believe, and his master's thesis was turned into this particular book, which is a charming book, a really interesting book to read. And so by reviewing the book, I actually learned what arboglyphs were. They made sense to me. I've been studying rock art, which is pictographs, painted pictographs, and carved petroglyphs for a long time here on the coast, photographing everything that I ever could find. But I had certainly never seen one of the wooden carvings until I read Blackstock's book. So this was pretty exciting. Here was an actual example of uh, what is now known to be one of the art forms of First Nations, both in, inland and coastal. Ken had an idea, which I thought was right, and that it probably marked a trail, because across from the face that's carved in the tree, deeply carved, by the way, with a lot of overgrowth over, so it hadn't been done recently. You can tell by the growth of the tree how long ago it probably was carved. And uh, so you, you get a sense when you look at the picture or if you look at the, at the carving itself that it wasn't done um, 50 years ago, but probably longer than that. You're listening to Deep Roots Island Waves, stories about life's lessons from Indigenous voices. This episode brought to you in part by Literacy Now, Cortez Community Forest Co-op, Study Build, and private donors. There was a blaze on a facing tree, and the blaze and the face carved in two different trees indicated to me that it might be a trail marker. And certainly Blackstock in his book mentions that information that he gathered from various First Nations people that they often did mark trails. And they take the form of faces like this, but also there are other uh, for configurations and some rather abstract looking marks which probably would be trail markers and other forms have been carved into living trees and I think it's important to say that an arbor glyph is a carving in a living tree as opposed to an independent carving on a piece of wood that is down and so that's what the name actually means is something carved into a live tree and they do resemble a little bit some of the rock carvings. And there's also a resemblance to some, although certainly not all, 
painted pictographs. So they fall within a category of these three kinds of mark making that's found in situ. And one of the very, very exciting things about rock art is it's still where it was made. It's not decontextualized out into a, a museum. It is where it was meant to be. And that makes them very exciting if you're interested in First Nations history and in the landscape and how the landscape is marked. And the arborglyph is another example. When I was up there taking the picture, and when I first came up to the tree, it was just an enormous sense of awe and wonderment. My mind just went blank with questions. I was in such awe of seeing it. It, it now has been moved out of its location. It's no longer a live tree. But I think for the people here, right, it's an important moment. There was something about finding it that it was a connection to the landscape that was different from the one they had before. And I think also finding it in the middle of the, the logging clear cut is an interesting thing to do and probably twist your mind around quite a bit. Right? The reason the arborglyph was brought to Clohus was to protect it. If it was left standing, we're, there was a concern that treasure hunters might go up there, cut the tree down, and uh, sell it on the black market or put it in a private collection and make millions of dollars off of it. And so a decision was made that it's to be brought back to Clahoos to be preserved and to be installed in the, uh, the administration building. According to Michelle Robinson, Social Development Officer for the Clahoos First Nation. That's my given English name and my traditional name is Kwistunulat. And I am I'm a member of the Clahoos First Nation. I am the social development manager for the community, and I am on council for the community as well. Because, yeah, sure, we could have let it go back to the land. We could have. But then 100 years from now, when somebody else wants something from the Clahoos people, they'll say, you were never there. And we can say yes, because it's in our building. I just think it's really, really powerful to know that there's one part of that history is going to be here in the building that we're taking care of it. It's huge. There's so many stories behind that tree. They could tell about our history. I don't know about Kenny, but we keep saying she. Everybody comes in and we'll talk about her and it's she. So she, we're going to have to give her female traditional name. You know, I've been told that she was looking down the valley. So she was facing down the valley, looking down the valley when they brought her down. To me, that's really significant. I'm like watching over, and she's just taking care of everything, just like a mother would. According to the Bill Reed Center at Simon Fraser University, Coast Salish nations like the Clahoos did not carve totem poles. Quote, the only coastal people who did not have these poles were the Coast Salish. They had large carved planks attached to the inside and or outside of their ceremonial dance houses. This may not have been totally accurate. Ken knows of a story suggesting they had at least one totem pole. There's one story by Chief Julian where he tells of the only totem pole that he recollects 
seeing when he was a 12-year-old boy, and that was in Brem River. And he gave a brief description of the totem pole. And there was a human figure on the bottom, a welcome figure, and the next 10 or 15 feet was bare, it was just a round tree, and then the top figure was another human. So in his recollection as a 12-year-old boy, that's the only totem pole he ever remembers seeing. And he was born in 1845. He died in 1945 when he was 100 years old. So that, I think, is pretty significant to know about the only totem pole in our territory. The Clahous possess a much rarer find. There are few surviving arborglyphs in British Columbia. According to Northwest Coast Archaeology, the discovery of the Clahous arborglyph and a similar find in Namgis territory caused a mini flurry of excitement in archaeological circles during 2013. There's many, many other markers that would have been out there, but it's been logged. And so this is one that survived, and it's here now. For Clahoos people, it's really important. There's, there's pieces of it that our kids need to know about because there's been so much lost already. So what great a legacy to sit there and a child comes into the community in a building or a child in care gets to come and visit once a year and they see it. And we get to tell them about that. This is who you are. You've been listening to interviews with Ken Hanus and Michelle Robinson, Clahoos First Nation, as well as local historian Judith Williams. Thanks to producer Roy Hales for this edition of Deep Roots, Island Waves. Senior producers are Morgan Tams and Greg Asoba. Series coordinator is Odette Auger. Clahoos coordinator is Jacqueline Metzieu. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Cortez Island Museum and Archive Society, Canada 150, and the Clahoos First Nation for their support. Find more at cortezradio.ca.